Matthew chapter 5, we'll be in verse 33. We're going to go 33 to 48 this morning. We'll do a little bit of a recap. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus shows us some characteristics of kingdom citizens. And that's what you and I are. And we call ourselves by different names. We call ourselves uh, Christians, call ourselves followers of Jesus, call ourselves disciples. All of those are true and describe a different aspect of what it looks like to follow in the way of Jesus. But make no mistake, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are a kingdom citizen. You belong to something beyond the here and now. This really is, the Sermon on the Mount, really is the most practical sermon ever preached. Do you want to know what conduct looks like for kingdom citizens? And Jesus shows us very clearly. How how do I treat my spouse. So Jesus shows you here how you are to treat your spouse. How how do I interact with my neighbor? Well, Jesus shows us here how we're to treat my neighbor. The Beatitudes were the foundation for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And what, what Jesus is saying is when you are a kingdom citizen, you will live this way and you will be Blessed by the king. This is what it means then to walk in the manner and walk in the way of Jesus. In reality, it's the complete opposite of what we see in the world and what we see in our culture today. Following in the way of Jesus then, we find a much higher allegiance to the kingdom of God than we do to anything else. How many of you are sports fans? Anybody? Like, I, I get it. Like, uh, anybody's team playing in the Super Bowl next week? Like, anybody like a, a diehard Chiefs fan? No? All right, see, where, 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 where I come from, like in Denver, nobody was a Chiefs fan. We, we hate the Chiefs because the Chiefs beat up on us every year lately. Okay? Anybody a 49ers fan? Okay, so you guys just don't care, right? <laughs> Imagine, it's hard, remember your Falcons, remember your Bulldogs, remember, really have to do some work to remember your Yellow Jackets, like it's been a while. I mean, I'm just calling it like I see it, Marcus. It's just true. It's just true. He just he turned around and leaving. Look at him. Goodness. You are about to demonstrate and prove the point that I'm trying to make here. You show up, you have the jersey, you wear the shirt, you have the, you know, you, you, you got your cup that's got the logo on it. You have an allegiance to your sports team. You have an allegiance sometimes to, to the club that, that you're a part of. And what, what Jesus is saying here in the Sermon on the Mount, his introductory sermon to people. He's saying, if you want to follow in my way, your allegiance has to be so much higher to the kingdom of God than it does your sports team, than it does your political party, than it does to your golf club, than it does to anything else, your family even. Jesus is looking, he's just so, he's so straightforward and I love that about Jesus. Jesus doesn't try to get us in and say, okay, now here's the real deal. From the get-go, He says, you have to love me most. This is what it looks like to be a kingdom citizen. 
right? It's not what Christianity always looks like because we muddy it up so much. And we've had people before us muddy it up, and we're muddying it up for people who come after us. But at the, at the core of it all, do I know and love Jesus? Am I following in the way of Jesus? That's what the Sermon on the Mount lays out for us. This is how a son, this is how a daughter of God lives in the world. And after those statements of blessing, Jesus corrects our misunderstanding regarding the law. And we still have misunderstanding regarding the law. This is one of the most uh, uh, commonly repeated questions that I get. What what do we do with the Old Testament? What do we do with the law? And Jesus sort of uh, uh, lays it out and clears up confusion here. He says, rather than using the law as a standard of behavior to beat people up with, the law should be a mirror to reflect my own wickedness. And then the law should then point me to my need for a Savior. It all comes back to Jesus. So two weeks ago, we worked through the previous passage on marriage and divorce. God's heart is not represented in the statement, be married, don't get divorced. God's heart is that we would be in right, it goes further than that, that we would be in right relationship with one Another. God wants our marriages not only to bless other people, He wants them to be a blessing to us and, and to represent Him to each other and to those around us. Well, today we push a little further into the Sermon on the Mount and we look at verses 33 through 48, and God willing, we'll finish up chapter 5 this week. So let's dive in. Are you ready? Okay, three of you are ready. Do you want me to do the whole introduction again? Okay, you ready? All right. Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. Again, you have heard it said, because he's repeating this line over. You guys have heard this said. Now I'm going to get real with you and tell you the truth. Again, you have heard it said, heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, Or by the earth, for it is his footstool. Or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So Jesus follows up challenging us in our marriages and immediately flows into challenging us to be men and women who keep our word. And at first, this looks like a little disjointed, but that's only because we have human beings have put in these, these headings where we break up different portions of Scripture. and the ver- I mean, the numbers, they weren't there in the first place anyways, right? And so uh, those are there for our benefit to know where things are, how to identify and locate things. But Jesus is just teaching, and after he teaches about the seriousness of marriage, and this, the, then he moves on and says, but... Oaths. Let's talk about the way we make oaths to each other. The greatest oath that I have ever taken in my life was, I take you, Kristen McCravey, to be my lawfully wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love, to cherish, till death do us, do us part. I give you my heart, so help me God, or some variation of that. Greatest oath I've ever taken. So what's Jesus saying to us, men? Men in the room, he's saying, be God's man. Be a a man of God. Let your yes 
be yes, let your no be no of all your earthly relationships. Your relationship, husbands, to your wife must be the most sacred, important, special, and intimate. Ladies, what is Jesus saying to you? He's saying, be God's woman. Mean what you say. Say what you mean, but more than that, mean what you say. Let your words matter. This is another case of the religious leaders completely missing and then teaching the wrong point about the law. And I'm going to show how, how, misunder, how, how we have often misunderstood what Jesus is talking about and what the Old Testament law was talking about as well. Um, in the books of the law, God through Moses emphasized the evil of false swearing or making vows and not keeping them. Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in what? In vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Leviticus 19, verse 12. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 21, picks up the same theme. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. The point was, don't swear by God's name and then break that vow. Serious business. Serious business to swear by the name of God and then not keep that oath or that vow. But the Pharisees were teaching that these laws were not necessarily about us being men and women of our word, but that these laws were actually about the words that we use. But it's not so much. It's more about because what did Jesus always push to? We say this just about every week. Jesus was far more interested in what? The heart. So let's not get to this section and just say, okay, let's look at the very actual words being used. They matter, but Jesus isn't satisfied with the surface level stuff, is he? He says there's something beyond that. There's an integrity issue here. And Jesus is more interested in the integrity of our hearts than he is the words of our lips, although the words of our lips represent the integrity of our hearts. But rather than let me fix your speech, Jesus says, let me fix your heart and your speech will change. Do you see it? Sometimes we, 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 we get it so backwards. As a parent, I mess this up all the time where I want to discipline behavior instead of discipline heart issues. But we're called to discipline heart issues and behavior will oftentimes and should follow. You see what I'm saying? So Jesus wants to cut to the heart here. And he's saying the Pharisees are teaching it's only about the words. And Jesus says, it's not really about the words. In other words, the Pharisees, what they often did when they twisted a law, God said, don't swear by my name falsely. Right? So uh, imagine, if you will, in the Old Testament or even in Jesus' day, that a man enters into an agreement with his neighbor. Imagine that the situation is, is this. I have grain and you have sheep. I will trade with you. Okay, because in the day that they lived, trading was often the way that, that people would have enough of each thing that they, that they needed. I will trade with you. I will trade you four bundles of grain for, what do you guys think? 
One sheep, that's pretty reasonable. Four bundles of grain, I have grain, you have sheep, but a sheep is probably worth more than grain, so I will trade with you four bundles of grain for one sheep. And I swear by the very name of the God who created us that I will give you four bundles of grain for one sheep. There's no written contract, is there? This is not a society full of written contracts. Oftentimes, this would be an agreement that two farmers or farmer and a rancher, whatever they were called back then, shepherd, would enter into. So the farmer and the shepherd enter into an agreement. They make an oath to one another. No small claims court. Your oath is your contract. Now, the man who has no grain... He's run out of grain, comes to the shepherd and says, I'm out of grain. I've brought the sheep. I'm ready for my, how many bundles of grain? Four bundles of grain. I have brought the sheep I promised you. I brought a cart that is being pulled by my ox to load up my four bundles of grain that you agreed to. But the farmer now sees that the shepherd is in a tight spot. So a smart business practice would be Guess what just got more expensive? Grain, not sheep. Grain. He knows that the shepherd needs the grain to feed his animals, to feed his family. So he says, the price of grain has gone up. I still want your sheep, but a sheep is now worth two bundles of grain. The law was clear. This is taking the name of the Lord in vain. You have made an oath and sworn by the name of the Lord, and now you're changing the terms of the deal. You invoke the name of God, and you treated God as a bargaining chip. You have reduced the holy name of God, which they wouldn't even utter. They wouldn't even write it out. You have reduced the name of Yahweh, creator God, to a bargaining chip on the table. You have made an oath. You have sworn falsely. You have treated God as if he is something casual or someone casual when he is, in fact, holy. Now, the, the Pharisees took that precedent and would have said, shame on you. Right? They're right about this. That's bad. They would have said that's a bad thing to do. You should not do that. But then the Pharisees took it a step further and said, if only you had not used God's name, it wouldn't be a deal. You, there's a list of words you can use and can't use when making an oath, according to the Pharisees. In the moment you invoked the name of God, you got yourself in trouble. So next time, just leave God's name out of it and you'll be okay. No sin involved. This is what the Pharisees are teaching. They taught that it's not really a lie unless you attach God's name to it. And this drove Jesus crazy. You can't swear what Jesus is saying, by anything that is not Yahweh's. The principle is this, and I'm going to give you three principles today based on the text. People of the kingdom do not look for loopholes. Rather, they are committed to keeping their word. People of the kingdom do not look for loopholes. Rather, they are committed to keeping their word. 
Rather than looking for a loophole and saying, but I didn't say that exactly, we're men and women who look for and cherish opportunities to keep our word because we recognize that our word represents someone's name, the name of God himself. People of the kingdom don't look for loopholes. Rather, they're committed to keeping their word. This is so terribly difficult and feels impossible as a parent. And I say this with kids in the room because we're notorious, or at least I am, for making this statement. Like, my kids are going to nail me on this later. My kids will ask me a question. And if I'm already annoyed, here's my response. And Riley could probably fill in the blank right here. And here's my response. We'll see. When sometimes internally, I know we're not going to see about anything. I have already made my mind up, but I just don't want to have a fight right now. So I'll say, we'll see. You know what that is? That's a lie. And Jesus is calling me to be a man of my word. Let my yes be yes and my no be no. People of the kingdom, kingdom parents, don't look for loopholes. We look for opportunities to keep our word. The, the answer is going to be no right now. The answer is going to be no later. But if I just don't want the fight or the argument, or I'm just exhausted from a long day, sometimes it's easier to say, we'll see. It's just, a, it's just an example of how this plays out in my life. But in the process of avoiding the fight, and sometimes we'll say that with somebody else, not because of a fight, but because we're, we don't want to do what? We don't want to disappoint people. Any people pleasers in the room? Like those of us in the room who are people pleasers, man, we would rather we would rather accidentally lie to your face than let you down. And I say accidentally lie because sometimes we're guilty of saying we'll see, and maybe maybe we really do wish we could see, but we don't see, and so we we told a lie. And Jesus is saying the name of God is on the on the line here. We don't need to be people who look for loopholes. In the process of avoiding the fight or avoiding the disappointment, I've sacrificed my integrity. People of the kingdom don't look for loopholes. We are marked by being men and women of our word. In other words, we become people who don't have to swear. Why? Because our words already carry weight. Because we've been men and women who are yes means yes and our no means our no. Means no. Do your words carry weight? Or are you quick to repeat every word or story you hear? Some of us are guilty of that. We're so casual with our speech that we see something, we read something on Facebook, and we'll just repost it. We don't even know if it's true or not. What Jesus is saying, kingdom citizens, their words matter. Their online words matter. Their in-person words matter. Their texting words matter. Their email words matter. Verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Everyone is familiar with an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. These were, they were in Jesus' day as well. Everybody knew this statement. It's straight from the Old Testament. The law was given in the Old Testament for a couple of reasons. 
Primarily the law, as we learn later in Scripture, was given to show us what God is actually like. What does he value? How would he interact with the world? The law has a second function as well, especially in the time of the Old Testament. The law was given because we are evil. Right? And, and if people have no law, if evil people have no law, then they just run amok and we're stuck guessing at everything. And when evil is present, justice is needed. You, you broke your word in regards to our deal. Back to our deal with the grain and the sheep. You broke your word. You only want to give me two bundles of grain. You know what I want to do? Because you broke your word and you sent me home with two bundles of grain and I didn't have any choice but to take the two bundles of grain because my family at home is going to starve if I don't take what was a good deal for both of us but now is a rotten deal for me and a really good deal for you. You know what I want to do when I go home later that night? I want to sneak out at night and I want to light your fields on fire. And that's right in my eyes. You broke your word. Or maybe I won't go that far. But you know what I will do? I will blast you to the neighbors. Man, I am going to make sure everybody knows what a scoundrel you are. And I am going to tell everybody, don't do business with him. Or I'm going to tell everybody, hey, he's not looking. You can go cut some off the corner of his field over there. This is what happens in a world where there's no law. We crave justice, but we don't know how to get justice. And without the Old Testament law that God gave to his people, we would go out and seek they would go out and seek justice on their own. And so God sets justice in place. He gives rules for governing how we legally should respond to each other when one person doesn't keep their part of the deal. In the New Testament and in our day, here's where we begin to get off track. We neglect to understand that the law was not only moral. The Old Testament law, much of it is moral law, but there's a big part of it as well that is civil law. This was given to God's people. They didn't have a king. They needed to know how to live and interact with each other in the world. These laws were given to limit the compensation on the victim to an exact equivalent and to prevent you. Right? The guy practically stole from you. What does the law do for you? It prevents you from becoming the villain. Because justice has been set in place. You don't have to wonder, how are you going to get even with this swindler of a farmer? Because the law has set in order what must be done. But the religious teachers, again, did what they always do, and they twisted it around. I've been wrong. Things must be made right. I can't let them get away with that. This is the way we feel inside. Someone has to do something. Principle. People of the kingdom do not look for opportunities to get even. People of the kingdom, kingdom citizens, do not look for opportunities to get even. Rather, they are committed to sharing his grace. You will be treated poorly. Jesus already established this, hasn't he, in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, blessed are you 
When you are persecuted, blessed are you when people hurl all sorts of insults at you. Blessed are you when you suffer on my account. He's saying you will be treated poorly. You will be persecuted. Already established, you will be lied about behind your back. You will be misunderstood and you will be tempted to think someone has to do something. And the natural inclination of the human heart, and this is the utter brilliance of King Jesus is he knows that someone has to do something naturally leads to I have to do something. But Jesus is showing us something more than that. He's showing us that the law was given, not given rather, in the first place to show us what we could get away with. One pastor I read this week said it this way, the law was never there so we know what we can do. It's who you should be and who you should be is like the Father. But we have hearts, you and I, just like the Pharisees. When we've been done wronged, we want it made right. Something needs to be done. And as Jesus is teaching, they have zero idea. As Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount, those who are listening, the Pharisees, his followers, they have zero idea. They have no idea, but even in that moment, as he is teaching them that kingdom people don't look for opportunities to get even, but rather they're committed to grace. What Jesus is teaching us is this. People of the kingdom refuse to trust in themselves and their own ability to make things right. We are people who look to Jesus. We are people who lean on Jesus. We willingly choose to trust the word of Jesus when he says... You don't have to retaliate. But that takes an enormous amount of faith. Because everything in our carnal selves craves things being made right. And for us to take Jesus at his word when he says you don't have to get even with them. You don't have to retaliate. That requires me putting my faith and trust in him. That no matter what happens, he will handle not only it, but me. Two things. Jesus, number one, modeled this. Jesus, who was beaten and crowned with pain and thorns, looked to who? Looked to his father. Jesus when he could have responded, he tells us, with legions of heaven's mightiest warriors, did not. Jesus, who is the same God who, remember, sent fire from heaven to incinerate the wood, the altar, the sacrifice on Mount Carmel at the prayer of Elijah could have called fire down and incinerated every single evildoer who was doing him evil while he was being led to the cross and while he was hanging on the cross. But he didn't. Jesus showed us that loving someone who wrongs you is not weakness, but it is strength, and it is a matter of faith in your heavenly Father. Loving someone who has wounded you is an active choice. 
So Jesus modeled it, but Jesus also leads us. When Jesus went to the cross completely innocent of any wrongdoing, when he was being lied about, when he was being slandered, when he was being abused, Jesus leaned on the character of his heavenly father. He knew the heart of his father, and he chose to trust that. When you don't understand what and why things are happening around you, you can still, and here's a very important word, choose to trust. But there are many times in our lives, beloved, where trusting in God has to be an active choice that we make, not just once, but daily and sometimes moment by moment. You can rely on the Lord and you can know that he is leading you. You don't have to exact revenge on people because you trust in the Lord. You can know that he watches over you. This is what Jesus is leading us to do. When someone slanders you, Jesus is leading you to trust him. When someone cuts you off on the freeway, laugh about it. Jesus is leading you to trust him because the natural tendency is to speed up and then cut them off. Right? Don't let Officer Joe hear that out in the hall. But Jesus is leading us to trust him. And here's where it gets real for some of us. Just because you don't follow through on your initial desire to cut somebody off, like in your mind, you grip the steering wheel, you grit your teeth. Moron. Where'd they learn to drive? Right? And you think, right? Somebody raised his hand. He's confessing on himself. It's not just me, okay? Just because you don't follow through on your initial desire to do that, just because you don't follow through on your initial desire, you wrote the Facebook post or you wrote the text and you haven't hit send yet, doesn't mean, and this is what Jesus has been teaching us for 30, 42 verses so far in this chapter, doesn't mean you haven't already done it in your heart. And one of the major points we've seen so far is that your heavenly father is so invested in the health of your heart. You know what I don't love? I don't love teaching that is not practical. That's not always true. Like I love just learning random useless stuff. Like I'm just, I know so much stuff that doesn't matter. It's finding the stuff that matters sometimes. For instance, I, I'm terrible at fixing things. Terrible. And some of you know that because you've helped me fix things that I've broken when I was trying to fix them. But I'm also stubborn. Um, I, I, I don't want to watch a YouTube video on the internet. I've never sat down and wondered, how does my dryer work? I must know and sat down and watched YouTube videos on the inner workings of a dryer. But two weeks ago, when one of the rollers broke on my dryer, I watched a YouTube video on how to fix it. And I got on Amazon. I ordered the part. It got there in a couple days. And the next week, I took my dryer apart. And there's the drum there. And there's the front piece there. And there's stuff over there. And there's stuff over there. And miracle of miracles. When I put it back together, nothing blew up. It worked. Our clothes are getting dry. And it's not making an evil noise right now that it was a couple of weeks ago. The next section that we read is like, it's, it's practical. I'm not going to watch a YouTube video on what a, how a dryer works, but I will watch one on how to fix my dryer. In other words, Jesus does not say as long as you don't physically punch someone in the face, you are good and great is your reward in heaven. 
Nope. He wants your heart, so he's practical and he pushes further. Look at verse 43. This is where he just sums all this section up for us. You have, again, you've heard it said. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father. What does that mean? So that you will look like your father who is in heaven. So that you will resemble your father who is in heaven. Why? Because the kingdom of God is the kingdom of heaven. And he's teaching us and showing us what kingdom citizens look and live like. And he says right here, so that you will resemble. You will be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son Rise on the evil and on the good and sins rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect or complete as your heavenly Father is perfect. Final principle for us today. People of the kingdom do not follow the desire of their heart. They follow the way of Jesus. People of the kingdom don't follow the desire of their heart. They follow the way of Jesus. So Jesus says, not, not, not only are you going to follow, not only are you not going to follow the natural inclination of your heart, I am leading you to do the exact opposite of the natural inclination of your heart. The call and the command of God on your life, if you are a disciple of Jesus, is to love him and to follow him. Let's make no mistake. That's what we signed up for. And if you didn't sign up to know and not just love, but follow Jesus. He calls us to be disciples, not just Christians, not just pew sitters where we learn, right? He calls us to be Christians, followers, little Christ, disciples. The call and command of God on our lives as disciples is to love him and to follow him. And Jesus loved those who treated him with hatred and scorn. What does Jesus call you to? It's not just don't punch people in the face when they make you mad. Right? We, we don't get a sticker for that. He says, love those who, what? Love those who hate you and persecute you. Love those who hate you and persecute you. Love those who, in your heart, feel like they are enemies. Do the exact opposite of what you feel like doing. So here's my question. This, I told you this is practical. Who is that for you? Who is that for the church? Man, we are really good at rallying the troops for causes. We're really good at rallying the troops to stand against evil. But we haven't always been so good at rallying the troops to love evildoers. And, and Jesus says, we have to love those who feel like enemies. So who is that for us? Who's that for the church? The LGBTQ community and movement? The abortion complex? The industry? Liberal Democrats? Conservative Republicans? Some of us, 
write that down if we're being honest. Immigrants? Neighbors? Your ex? Jesus is done correcting here. He's done what the, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. And this is the reality for the church. This, was, this message was new for this crowd. The family, it's not new to us. We have heard this, for those of us who have grown up in the church, we've heard it our whole lives. We've heard this a thousand times before some of us. And what Jesus is saying to us, it's time to actually do what I told you to do. It's time to actually live as a kingdom citizen, like our highest allegiance is to him before anything else. It's time to be my hands and feet is what Jesus is calling us to do. It's time to be my church, not your church. It's time to demonstrate me and my grace to the world. It's time to show the radical love of the Father to the world. How are we doing in that regard? How are you doing in that regard? And aren't you you grateful? This is not a condemnation, but it's an invitation. Where Jesus is saying, look how wonderful the kingdom is. Don't you want to be a part of what I'm doing? That's the invitation. Heads bowed, eyes closed. As the worship team comes up to lead us, here's the invitation. For some of us, I'm just going to encourage you, just stay in your seat and just pray. Hey, Lord, how am I doing at this last part of not following the desire of my heart, but following you? Like, am I acting? praying for those who have treated me poorly or who, who I consider as enemies? Like, am I doing that? If not, maybe you just need to spend some time with the Lord in prayer this morning, whether it's coming forward or whether it's, whether it's right there in your seat. But let's take it to heart today. For some of us in the room this morning, can I just say to you, you may not be followers of Jesus. You may be church members. You may be Baptist. You may have gone to church, this church or another church, your whole life. But are you a member? Are you a a citizen of the kingdom? Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus? Has that been evidenced by a change that he has made in your heart and in your life? And if not, I beg of you today, fall on the grace of Jesus and say, "I'm, I'm yours. I got nothing else. I've tried everything else, but I'm here to follow you and you can have all of me. If that is the desire of anyone's heart in the room, online, then this morning in faith, reach out to him. And there'll be pastors down at the front this morning. I'd be more than happy to pray with you and lead you in that. But be obedient to what he says and what he's doing in your life. Lord, we love you. Thank you for challenging us through your word this morning. Help us to be men and women who reflect your kingdom values. Men and women of our word, men and women who don't look for loopholes, but look for opportunities to live out lives of integrity. We love you in Jesus' name, amen.